Well, good morning. This morning, we're going to continue our series on Genesis as we are reading through the Bible in 2017. It's a year of dwelling in God's Word and being shaped by the Word of the Lord, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as we've been reading through this, this book together and the book of Matthew, I've heard a lot of conversations where people are really struggling with some of these intense and, and, and violent and, and gross stories that are in Genesis that we don't always talk about in church. There's a lot to wrestle with in Scripture. But I think it's so important that we consider the whole counsel of God, as, as Paul told the Ephesian elders, I'm going to deliver to you the whole counsel of God. We're not going to cherry pick the things that we read. We're going to try to understand what God's saying to us throughout his entire word for us because it's all good. Every word of the, of the Lord is, is good and, and useful for us in teaching, 1 Timothy 3.16, in, in reproof and encouragement. So we are looking at the whole counsel of scripture. And as we read today, we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, one of the most powerful passages, and one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Last week we talked about how uh, vital Genesis is for laying the foundation for our faith. The entire Judeo-Christian tradition is, is, is born on the foundation that Genesis lays. It's the exposition, we said. It's the introduction. It, it lays out the main characters in the story of everything ever. It lays out the, the setting. It lays out the, the problem. We talked last week about sin about how the whole creation, the whole cosmos was plunged into death and darkness and decay when sin entered into what was formerly a very good creation. Conflict was introduced into the narrative and from that point on, the hero of the story, God himself, the protagonist, would be about the work of bringing it all back, of, of fixing the problem, of restoring everything back unto himself, making all creation once again very good by eliminating sin. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis are, are really separate from chapters 12 through 50. The first 11 chapters are, are this giant cosmic scale. It's these massive global events. Once sin enters the world, violence takes over the whole world and, and, and pervades everything. So God says, enough, I'm going to cleanse it. And he sends a flood to cleanse the world of, of all the violence and destruction that was happening in the world. But he preserved Noah and his family. But then Noah and his descendants, they, they, they messed up as well. And his descendants decide to build a tower to heaven so they can be like God. And God scatters them, mixes up their languages, and scatters them all across the earth. And then in Genesis 12, the, the story takes a, a real sharp turn. From, from this point on, instead of focusing on this kind of cosmic scale, the rest of Genesis focuses on a family. God's strategy changes. His plan now is no longer to do these massive global things like a flood for the earth, but now it's to create a family for himself, to create a people that will be set apart, a people that will be holy, a people that will be different from the world in order to make a difference in the world. And it starts with one guy. His name's Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He says, go from your, your country and your kindred and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And he goes, not knowing where he's going, trusting in God, walking by faith. It's the beginning of Abraham's faith journey. 
And, and we see that it has ups and downs. God appears to him again at Shechem right after that in chapter 12, and, and he builds an altar to the Lord, and he worships. And then again at Bethel, the Lord appears to him and says a word to him, and Abraham builds another altar and offers worship as he calls upon the name of the Lord. So he's, he's journeying to Canaan, which is the land that God promises to give him, the land that, that will be the promised land, and that he will be a great people, that a great nation will come from him, and his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And we see in the next chapter that he and his nephew Lot separate. He says, Lot, you pick which way you want to go. And Lot says, the Jordan Valley looks lush and green. I'm going to go that way. And Abraham says, fine. And he goes towards Canaan. And the Lord says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to give you all the land that you can see as far as you can see. It's all going to be yours. And then four armies of Canaan attack Lot. And Abraham goes and rescues him. And the Lord delivers him miraculously from the four kings and the four armies. And then a mysterious priest named Melchizedek shows up. And he blesses Abraham, and he offers him broken bread and a cup of wine. The first communion, perhaps, in Scripture. And he says to Abram, the Lord will bless you and multiply you surely. And shortly after that, the Lord appears to Abram and tells him to make a sacrifice, to, to, to cut up an animal and lay the animal along the path. And God shows up. He shows up as a, as a column of smoke and a fire pot, and he moves down the path between the animal sacrifice, and he says to Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a promise, a one-sided deal that I will not renege on ever. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars themselves. And Abraham is silent before the Lord, but he, we know that he believes it. He actually believes that God's going to do this thing because he was justified by faith. By faith, he was made right with God. By faith, he was counted as being good with God because he believed in God's ability to do what God said he would do. That's what faith is. But the years went by and still no heir was given to Abram. How would God possibly do this thing that he said? So he and his wife decide to devise their own plan and speed things along a little bit, help God out a little bit. So they take Hagar, Sarai's maidservant, as, as his wife, and, and, and they bear a son. Hagar bears him a son, Ishmael. We know that was not God's plan, though. And it became a, a huge source of contention and calamity in their household for 15 years of, of misery, eventually leading to Hagar and Ishmael being sent away forever. But one day, when Abraham is 99 years old, God shows up again, and he changes Abraham's name to to, from Abram to Abraham, father of a multitude. And he changes Sarah, Sarai's name to Sarah. And he says, behold, I'm going to give you a son, and his name will be Baby Laughter, Isaac. There's nothing sweeter than the sound of baby laughter, is there? I love that sound. My son Isaiah is eight months old, and when he gets giggling, everybody laughs because it's hilarious. Isaac will provide laughter for Abraham and Sarah in their old age. But Abraham's faith is unsteady, right? We know that he lies to Pharaoh and to Abimelech about the true identity of who his wife is. And then the, the big mess up of trying to speed along God's plan by, by moving things along with Hagar himself, that was never a part of God's plan. But once Isaac is born, a year later after this time, everything comes together. Abraham's faith is on fire. And at the end of chapter 21, he worships El Olam, God everlasting, the God who always provides, who never changes. 
<clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> his great promise to Abraham to give him a land and to give him a people is coming true. Abraham's seen <clears throat> the plan in motion. He's seen that this thing's happening. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to be good, I promise. But his faith at that point is clicking. But it seems like in our own lives, whenever we're encouraged in our faith and things seem to be going great, that's when God shows up to, to test us, to stretch our faith, to grow us in more and more into the person that he's making us in order that we might trust him more. That's what happens in Genesis 22. Look at verse 1 as we read this together this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The reader gets to know something here that Abraham has no clue about. It says the Lord tested Abraham. The reason the author provides us with this necessary information is because this text would be too excruciating to read if we did not know it was a test. It's, it's such a brutal passage that it would be emotionally more than we could bear if we did not know it was a test. But Abraham doesn't have that luxury. He doesn't have the word from God that tells him that this is a test. So why does God test us? It says here he's testing Abraham. Does God still test us today? Absolutely, you know that. So why does he do it? Is it some cruel test to show us just how far short we've fallen? Is, is he a mean God who wants to hurt us and manipulate us? No. God tests us because he loves us. He wants our faith to be stronger so that we will learn to rely on that which is always reliable and to quit putting our trust in things that will fail ultimately. God wants us to have faith in him, a faith on fire, a faith that moves mountains. And that can only be done if our faith is grown and stretched through times of testing. So immediately after God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses in a, in a, a thousand years in Exodus 20, immediately after that, the very next verses talk about how the Israelites panicked because God shows up and they don't know if God's there to help them or hurt them. And they're freaking out about it. Look at Exodus 20. It'll be on the screens here. The very next verse, verse 18, after the Ten Commandments says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, this is on Mount Sinai, they're freaking out. The sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. If, if God showed up here and you heard a trumpet and things started flashing and smoke was happening, we'd be scared, wouldn't we? And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. They don't know what God's purposes are. And Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's a key when we come to times of testing, isn't it? Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. How many of you are in thick darkness today? It says that God was in the thick darkness. You see, God tests us in order to draw us closer to himself in the thick darkness so that we will not be far off from the one who provides all things to us in times of darkness, but that we will draw near to him. 
Moses also says he tests us so that we may not sin, so that we'll fear him, so that we'll live in in life-giving ways that God prescribes for his people and not in the self-destructive ways of sin. Then look at verse 2. What what does this test consist of that Abraham's going to go through? Here's the test. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, baby laughter, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow. This is intense. In the last chapter, Abraham just lost a son, Ishmael, never to return again as he sent him away. Will he now be asked to give up another son? Will he be forced to lose Isaac, the laughter that God had promised to to him and Sarah to provide laughter in their old age, and the one through whom the covenant promises of God were to continue? Through Isaac, the lineage of God's people would come. Would, would Abraham be forced to sacrifice the future that God had promised to him as well? And God sends him to Moriah to make this sacrifice. Mount Moriah, one day, a thousand years from then, would become the, the mount in the center of Jerusalem on which King Solomon would build the temple of God. It was a place where sacrifices were offered up as, as atoning sacrifices for the people of God to the true Yahweh, Jehovah Lord of all creation. But in this day, it was wilderness. In this time, it was pure wilderness. Maybe you're in a wilderness today. God tends to test people in the wilderness, doesn't he? In Matthew 4, when, when Jesus began his, his ministry, where was he tested? In the wilderness. When the, Egypt, the uh, uh, Israelites fled Egypt, where did they wander for 40 years of testing? In the wilderness. And, and you know, there's something about the wilderness that, that matters when we're t- being tested, okay? In the wilderness, one has to really decide if they really want to be free or not. The Egyptians, uh, the Israelites longed to go back to Egypt. They said, we'll take the shackles. At least we had three squares a day in Egypt. This is, this is tough out here in the desert, out in the wilderness. Do you really want to be free? Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day where we celebrate and we thank God for the work that he and, and, and many other civil rights leaders engaged in to, to secure freedom for a people who had been oppressed ever since we had kidnapped them and, and brought them here as slaves. to to build the economy of this nation. It's probably the original sin of America, many people believe, including me. Freedom is an important part of God's plan for the world. He longs for his people to be free. He gives us freedom. But with freedom comes inherent insecurities. We don't know where our next meal is going to come from when we're in the, the wilderness, do we? We have to rely on manna from heaven. Daily bread is what Jesus called it when he taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. That's a scary thing. Would you trade the security of your three squares a day in captivity for living in freedom with the insecurity that comes along with that? It's a question that we must ask ourselves in the wilderness today. And and what a test for Abraham. God tells him to take his son, and then he says, your only son. And then he says, your precious son whom you love. Baby, laughter, Isaac. Anyone 
who's been blessed to be a parent knows the kind of love that a parent has for their child. Morgan's sister posted a picture on, on Facebook recently of, of their now five-year-old daughter back when she was a six-week-old baby. And it's black and white, and she's just precious, a uh, little angelic look on her face as she's sleeping. And, and the caption she put on it just last week was, this seriously makes my heart hurt. It does. Parents love their children with an achy kind of love that just breaks your heart. That's the kind of love that Abraham felt for Isaac. And now he's told to sacrifice him. And, and not just sacrifice him, but to offer him as a burnt offering. You know, the Greek word for the burnt offering in the Bible is holocaust. It means completely burned up. That's the kind of sacrifice that he's supposed to do for his own son. And you know, the way this sacrifice was done was they would, they would first cut the throat of the animal and they would bleed the animal out. And then they would dismember the animal into sections. And then they would arrange the sections on the altar and they would burn all those sections of that sacrifice until nothing was left. That's the burnt offering that Abraham was supposed to do to his child. I couldn't do that to a sheep, okay? I'm squeamish. I couldn't do it to any animal, much less my, my son or my daughter. And yet that's what the Lord was telling him to do. And, and child sacrifice wasn't unknown in Abraham's world, okay? He's from Ur of the, of the Chaldeans, a huge child sacrifice cult there. And now he's in Canaan, child sacrifice going on there all the time. There was a, a cult of a guy named Molech, this false god, and, and the people who worship Molech were told to give their firstborn baby to the flames as an offering to Molech, to burn their, their firstborn baby. This is why Leviticus 18, God, pro, uh, he prohibits this practice for his people. Leviticus 18.21, God says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. In 2 Kings, again, 23, the young king Josiah, he institutes all these reforms. God's people had wandered so far from his path in Judah, and he says, no more child sacrifice. We've got to quit that. God doesn't like it. But Abraham didn't have the Torah, did he? He didn't know God's character. He was uninformed of who God was because he didn't have what we have, the precious revelation of God to his people, the gracious gift of God's ways in written form that we have today. So he, he goes along with this. I, I couldn't have done it. And here's the truth. You couldn't have done it. And the most important part is that God would never ask you or me to do it because we know God's character. We live on this side of God's word. We know that God would never ask us to do this because he's a good God who does not delight in child sacrifice. But Abraham didn't know that. So again, is, is God cruel and, and twisted for ordering this for a naive guy? Many people have read this text and concluded that God must be a monster for asking Abraham to do this. But this is why we read the whole thing, isn't it? Look at verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham gets up at first light with no hesitation. Immediate obedience is, is what results here. It's amazing what faith he must have. The, the last time he, the Bible tells us that he got up early in the morning was to send Hagar and Ishmael away forever. And yet he does it again. His, his obedience is incredible as, a, as, an, as an example for us to follow. 
And the text is minimalist. We don't get a lot of details of what he's thinking here, but we can fill in the blanks, can't we? The, the order of events that he's doing in, to prepare for this trip is illogical. Why does he saddle his donkey first and then cut the wood? Because he's out of his mind. He's numb. He's reeling from this task before him that God's asked him to do. I think we can fill in the blanks on what he's feeling at this point and what he's thinking. And then verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw Mount Moriah, the place from afar. We're not told anything that was said during the course of that three-day journey. You know, I wonder if Abraham ever prayed what Jesus prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink this cup, but your will be done, not mine. I, I think Abraham probably did pray that. I'm sure he did. I, I know I would have. And they arrive on the third day, the 11th hour. It's crunch time. Clock's running out. It's time to go. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He simply tells the, the servants in the hearing of young Isaac this vague description of what they're going to do. We're going to go worship. The truth is, he's going to offer a Holocaust offering. But he doesn't say that in front of Isaac. And, and here's the, a, a key here. He says, we will come back. It's plural in the Hebrew. Not me and the boy are going to go and then I'm going to come back. He says, we will come back. He really believes this, and that's not just like my interpretation, okay? It's not my guess of what's happening here. The New Testament has interpreted this text for us. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, verses 17 through 19, tell us that Abraham is basically the Michael Jordan of faith, okay? In the hall of faith, Abraham is, is number one. He's the all-time leader in faith because of stuff like this. This amazing faith and trust that he has in what God can do. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises, the covenantal promises, was in the act of offering up his only son. He followed through in the act of it. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham didn't know God really well at this point, but he reasoned that God could raise the dead. He knew that, that God was the powerful God who created the whole world and that he was possible of resurrection. He envisioned the doctrine of resurrection before it was even a thing. It's incredible how powerful it is. In John 8, 56, Jesus is talking to the Jews and he tells them this, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Scholars don't really know what that means, but maybe it means that Abraham somehow glimpsed the resurrection of Christ. Maybe he envisioned this idea that God could raise the dead, that death would not have the final word. It's what we celebrate at Easter. It's, it's what informs us as we grieve at funerals, that death is not the end, that Jesus Christ overcame death itself by rising from the dead. 
What amazing faith this is. You know, we know that, that in Job's story, when Job lost his family, when God took away his family from him, Job showed incredible faith and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Abraham takes that to another level. Abraham says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and the Lord gives back. That's incredible faith. Saying that the Lord, even if he takes Isaac, he's going to raise him from the dead and give him back to me. That's incredible. Again, that informs us on how we grieve. That death is not the end. That we will see those who have gone on before us again in the new creation. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. In the last chapter, it must have pained Abraham greatly as he lays the, the water skin and the bread on Hagar and Ishmael and sends them away. But how much worse to lay the wood on his own son. At least this time it says they went together. Abraham, with, with Hagar and Ishmael, he sent them away. And there's all kinds of amazing gospel parallels in this text, aren't there? It says that he laid the wood on his own son. Around the time of Jesus, there was some, some midrash, Jewish commentary. It's called midrash that these rabbis would add to the Jewish scriptures. And, and there was some midrash from this, uh, about the first century, that said about this text that Isaac resembled a condemned man carrying his own cross on the way up the hill to die. We know in John 19:17 that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Genesis 22 is a shadow of what is to come. Every page whispers his name, right, in this entire book. Let's keep reading verses 7 and 8. Isaac says to his father Abraham, my father, it's an intimate term, daddy. And he says, here I am, my son. Again, my precious son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Isaac's big enough to carry the wood, but he's small enough to ask a naive question. Where's the lamb, daddy? He breaks the silence of a grieving father by asking this innocent question of where's the lamb? He, he doesn't have a clue what's coming, but it's clear that he totally trusts his father. One commentary I read said that if Abraham's the ultimate example of the faith of obedience, then Isaac's got to be the ultimate example of the faith of cooperation. He totally trusts his dad in the way that Abraham trusts God. The faith of cooperation. And it reminds us, of course, of Isaiah 53, the messianic prophecy where the prophet says in verse 7 that the Messiah was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaac agreed to walk on in silence. And Abraham's answer to his precious son is really the turning point in this whole narrative. It's the key to this whole text. God will provide. God will provide. That's the answer we need. It's the key to everything here. You see, he can't tell Isaac all that's going to happen up there on Mount Moriah because he doesn't know what's going to happen. But he does know that God will provide what is needed to accomplish the things that God says he will do. I heard a sermon by, by a guy named Kent Hughes. He was a pastor of a church in Wheaton, Illinois, on this passage. And he said this, the phrase, God will provide, 
is at once a declaration of Abraham's trust. It's also an expression of his deepest hope. God, I hope that you're going to do this. And it's also a, a prophecy of the future. God will provide. It's a declaration of what God's going to do in the future. And he does this all in a spirit of humble obedience and prayer. He declares his trust, he expresses his hope, and he prophesies about the future all in a prayerful, humble, submissive way. Let's keep reading verses 9 and 10. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. It's gut-wrenching. And laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham binds his, his only son, his precious son. Ishmael's gone at this point. And he, he reaches for the knife, fully intending to carry out the entire commandment that God has given him. I can't imagine. Surely this whole time, Abraham is crying out to God, pleading, desperate with him to intervene, to not allow this thing to be done. But he's obedient to the point of following through on the act. Then verses 11 and 12 the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So just as Abraham's hand goes up to his son's throat to make the incision, the messenger of God stays his hand. His incredible act of faith had shown just how deep his trust was in the high and the holy God of the universe. And he had been willing to give his only son and the future that that son represented as well, the future that God had promised to him previously. He didn't withhold any of it, but he obeyed fully, completely trusting God to take all of him and all that he had and to do with it what he would for his good purposes. And then verse 13. Abraham then lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. When he hears this voice from God, I think at the same time he sees a ram caught in the thicket. The Lord will provide, and the Lord did provide. That's the key. In Hebrew, the text literally says behind him was another ram. You see, Isaac was the first ram. He was the first sacrificial animal, but another one was offered in his place, a substitutionary atonement. Every page whispers his name. Don't forget that. So something big is happening here. The only places in the entire Hebrew Bible where the words ram, appear, and burnt offering are found together in Leviticus chapter 8, when you have the instructions for the priest, and then the other part is in Leviticus 16, about the Day of Atonement. You see, there's a great priest who's offering a sacrificial, substitutionary animal for the atonement of sin. It's all about Jesus Christ, isn't it? This is a big deal, and Abraham sacrifices the lamb on the altar, and as the flames are leaping up and consuming the burnt offering, so Abraham and Isaac offer up their hearts to the Lord in worship. Great are you, Lord. You have provided. We offer our hearts. Consume us, Lord. Take all that we are in worship as they offer this burnt offering. 
And then verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Don't miss the point of this text. Jehovah Jireh, it's about God. It's not about Abraham's faith. It's about God. The the verb God comes before the verb. God will provide. It's all about what God's character is and what he always does. All his promises are yes and amen. It's about the perfect, unfailing, forever, everlasting faithfulness of God that can always be relied on, who always provides. Let's finish the story. Verses 15 through 19, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Galatians 3 makes this clear. This is talking about us. We are Abraham's heirs. We are his offspring. And through us shall all the nations be blessed. Through us shall Guatemala be blessed in May and June of this year. Through us shall Nashville be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men as he promised he would do. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God did something here he'd never done before. He swore an oath in his own name. Hebrews 6 says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will do these things which I said I will do. I will multiply you. I will give you a son. I will give you a lineage that will be more numerous than the stars. And all God's promises are true. His faithfulness is always assured. This is the basis for our faith. It's the foundation on which we can put our trust in God. And Genesis 22 is the grand example of faith in the entire Bible. Dr. Dunn and I were talking about one of our, our congregation members who was in the hospital and didn't look good. And she had a miraculous turnaround. It was incredible. God did something amazing through the power of prayer. And I, I said, wow, God still does miracles, doesn't he? And Dewey said, yes, but it comes through faith. Faith is important. Faith makes things happen. Faith moves mountains. Faith is powerful and effective, isn't it? Do you want to experience those kinds of miracles in your own life? Do you want to see things happen that are so beyond explanation that only God could be credited for them? Do you want to experience God's perfect power and provision in your own life? Or are you content with the three squares a day you get in captivity? We must all seek to grow in our faith if we're going to truly live in freedom. And, And growth in faith only comes through testing. There's a pattern for how this works, okay? First, God, he tests our faith, right? We enter the wilderness. It's a test. And then God grows our faith. He stretches us. And we, we believe in God. We, we stand on his promises. And then God provides. Do you see the order to the sequence? God tests us, right? We're stretched. We believe God provides in that order. We'd like for God to provide first, and then we thank him, right? Doesn't always work that way. In fact, it seldom does. Our faith isn't stretched if God works that way, right? 
Morgan and I went to a conference and heard a church planner in Washington, D.C. tell a story about how in the early days of his church plant, he was both the worship leader and the, the, the preacher, and he was building a, a band, a praise band for his, his new church plant. And they really needed a drummer. He had no sense of rhythm and, and couldn't keep the people on track. So they really needed a drummer. So he, he started praying that a drummer would come to the church. And he encouraged the praise band, let's get on our knees, man. Let's really pray earnestly and fervently that God would send us a drummer. And they did. They prayed and prayed and prayed. And God didn't answer. God, well, he answered with no. He told them no. And, and eventually, after six months of praying for a drummer and no results, he said, you know, he told his wife, I think God wants us to buy a drum set first. And his wife, who kept the books for the church, said, okay, uh, how much does that run? And he said, well, a good used one's going to be about $400. She said, you, you do understand that uh, that means that we, we probably won't be able to eat for a while or pay our bills because this little church plant full of young people isn't going to be able to pay $400 for a drum set. He said, I think we need to do it. I think the Lord wants us to step out in faith first and be tested and be stretched. And so they did it. They bought a drum set. They set it up, put it in the back of the worship center, and they played without a drummer the first week. And after that service, a guy in a Marine uniform, all buttoned up, came up to him, and, and he said, oh, you're in the Marines, huh? What do you do? And he said, well, I play drums in the Marine Corps band. That guy became the drummer for their church for the next several years, became one of the first elders in that church. We step out in faith, and the Lord provides. What is it today that you need to obey God on? What is it that you need to do that steps out in faith? What is it that requires that first step on your part today? What is it that God's asking you to do that scares you? What is it that God's putting in front of you today that is going to require a massive leap? Do you trust that God will provide? Do you trust that God will do what he says he will do in your life? Do you trust that God is good and that he's on his throne? If you do, then let's take that step together. We'll encourage you here. Your family's here to support you at, at Woodmont. Let's step out in faith and do the hard things and see how God will honor it. See how your faith is stretched. And as it grows, see how the Lord provides. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for this sweet time of worship today when we read your word and we, we trust your promises. God, we thank you for the times of testing, because we know it results in our faith being stretched and grown. Help us to rely more completely on your perfect promises and your perfect provision. You give us our daily bread, God. We believe that. We ask that you would provide what we need for each day, but that we would step out in faith, trusting you to be there, to meet us in the desert, to show up in the wilderness and make a way where we can't see a way. God, that's what you do. You're in that business. We pray that you would do that here at Woodmont, both corporately and individually. That we as a church would rely on you in faith and see how you provide. That we as individuals would, would ask what it is that you want us to do, however scary it is, and we would step out. Maybe it's go on a mission trip to Guatemala. Maybe it's teach a Sunday school class. Maybe it's work with preschoolers or the Swahili refugees. God, I pray that whatever it is that you're calling us to do today, you would help us to step out in faith. We love you. We trust you. And we pray this in the high and the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.